In our Bible study tonight, we're going to move to Genesis chapter 14. So Genesis chapter 14 in the life of Abraham. And I've entitled the message tonight, Abraham's Team Seal 6. In this story, Abraham uh, does a secret night um, rescue. He's called in. No helicopters or night vision or sky jumping or anything like that. But uh, it was a pretty amazing feat that happens in Genesis 14. And if you'll bear with me, um, I want to read some of the chapter. And um, so just be thankful that you're not reading it. Genesis 14, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Kedileomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these were joined together in the valley of Sedim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedileomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Kedileomer, and the kings that were with him, and smote the Raphaims in Ashtaroth. Ker Naim and the Zuzims. Sounds like something out of um, Dr. Seuss's books. In Ham, and that is out of Dr. Seuss's book. And the Emims and the Sheva, Karaothim, Thaim. And the Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Emishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwell in Hazazan Tarmar. And there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adama and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar, and they joined battle with them in the valley of Sadim, which Kedileomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings with five. And the valley of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountains. Those are the other kings fled to the mountains. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the vehicles and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped, 
and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. They were, they were friends. They were in a league together. They, they lived in the same area. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. War. War in Ukraine, war in the Middle East, war in South America, war with the cartels in Mexico. There's threat of war in the South China Sea, war, threat of war with North Korea. I'm afraid, I'm, I'm reading a book of espionage in Hawaii during the time of Pearl Harbor, right before the start of World War II. And just the conflict, my generation grew up with the war of Iraq, war in Iraq, Desert Storm, the end of the Cold War, the long war in Afghanistan, and the long war on terror. War seems to be everywhere. You're, some of you who um, remember the Vietnam War, maybe even the Korean War, and very, um, uh, very real um, Cold War in some of, of this um, fear of nuclear war. It seems that war is all around us. Um, if, if you lived in some, some of the countries in Africa, if you lived in the Middle East, if you know in any other places in the world, there's, there's been wars that we don't even know about. We, don't even, we haven't even read between countries and places that often... I remember one of our dearest friends growing up uh, who was in the military in the 90s who was... Um, in conflict in Haiti and in conflict in Somalia, in threat of war as American troops were, were in the 90s spread out all over the world um, under UN control and direction. Genesis 14 is the first time in the Bible where there is war between nations and kings. We've had a lot of conflict if you, you know, read and start in Genesis 1 and you read through up to Genesis 14. You know that conflict is a part of life now in this broken world. There's been conflict in marriage, Adam and Eve. There's been conflict between siblings, Cain and Abel. There's been conflict in language, Genesis 11, with, um, with the confounding of the language of the Tower of Babel. There's been family conflict. You can read in the lines of Genesis chapter 5 and uh, in the lines of Genesis chapter 10 and the conflict that has happened even within the families and, and over whose wives. And you've got several stories of, of abuse and polygamy and, and the conflict that happens. We even read in the previous chapter there's conflict between family members, between Abraham and Lot, and between Herdmen, all right, the workers out in the field, conflict over sheep and land and pasture. We also know by this time in the book of Genesis, there's even conflict in the animal kingdom. We, we have a record of them being hunted and now them being eaten and this conflict between animals. We have seen conflict, but we've not seen war between nations yet. And now for the first time, it shows up in human history. Now, were there wars before Genesis 14? Probably so. But this is the first time that it's recorded for us. 
And in Abram's day, war was part of life. And interesting enough, 4,000 years later, war is still a part of life. We get caught up in it. Four kings. Amraphel, king of Shinar. Arioch, king of Elisar. Ketaliomer, king of Elam. West region, probably modern day Iran, east of the Persian Gulf. And Tidal, king of nations. His name actually is connected in some ways with the Hittite uh, name. This appears in uh, Hittite. This would be what we would see as modern day Turkey. Against five kings, Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zoaim, and a king that we don't know his name. It doesn't give his name. It's just he's the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All right? So he's the only king that is not named. These nine kings had made an allegiance together, a confederation, and they had served under one king named Ketaliomer for 12 years. But for some reason, on the 13th year, five of the kings of the Salt Sea, that would be the Dead Sea area region, rebelled against the four kings of the east. So you have the east kings, who are in a league, and the West kings, four on one side, five on the other, and, and the five rebel against the, the one who ends up being the, the lead guy. And, and now you have a battle. And between Genesis 14, verse 5 through 11, you have this battle that's going on. It's a battle in Shinar, or uh, in Babylon area, down in the Dead Sea, Ham to Damascus, modern Turkey, and the battle culminates in the valley of Sedim in the Jordan Valley, the river valley uh, south of the Jordan River. Now this is interesting. Many of these locations that are mentioned in Genesis 14, some of them are known and have been known by archaeologists in very recent periods, recent times. The last 50 years they have dug up evidence of, of these names and some of these places we don't know where they exist. In verse 10, at least one of these locations in the story that we've read about this morning, we're actually going to visit on our trip to Israel in, uh, in next year. Uh, we'll actually see the gates, the city gates that Abraham walked through in this story in 2000 B.C. The city gates are as old as the pyramids, 4,000 years old. And they've uncovered those city gates. Verse 10, the three kings end up fleeing to the mountains. They're escaped in this giant slaughter. But the king of Sodom and Gomorrah end up caught in this slime pit. And it's interesting. You know, it, um, I read a little bit about this. This was bitumen is a black tarry substance that is found around the world. In fact, you can find this slime pit substance floating on top of the Dead Sea today. If you go to the Dead Sea, and we will a year in our trip, we will probably see some of this slime pit stuff, this bitumen. You get stuck in this mud with trying to flee in this battle, and um, some have indicated that's possibly maybe the reason why this battle happened in the first place. Because down in that area of the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is known for some, some minerals, salt, 
bitumen and several other minerals that are even mined to this day. That there's a there, in the southern portion of the Dead Sea, they uh, they mine this these minerals and uh, they 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 sell it and send it all around the world. So that area has been fought over probably for resources for many years. The Middle East is still being fought over over resources uh, even to this day. The result of the battle is the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah are taken captive. And they're taken, their cities are plundered. Verse 11 says everything that they had was taken away from them. Now this is the context of the story, the next story that's going to happen in Abram's life. It takes, you know, 11 verses, 12 verses to set the context, and now Abraham enters in. The events are recorded for us to set the stage of how does Abraham respond when he's tested. He's been tested in a famine. How did he respond there? Well, he failed. He's been tested in, uh, with family conflict. How did he respond? We heard about that last week. And he's now he's been tested when he has plenty, when he has a lot, when he's rich and he's loaded. How does he respond when he's loaded? Well, now he's being tested when war comes. What do you do? What do the godly do? Now, can we go back for just a moment in chapter uh, 13 and just see a little bit um, David uh, Jones did saw this map and, and put it up for us. This is interesting. This is Abram's journey into, um, into the promised land. Chapter 13 and verse 12. We remember that Lot made his choice. And so here they are um, in, in the area of Hebron and, uh, and Bethel and Ai. This is where he ended up back from Egypt. He came back to Bethel. And there he, that's where he made the altar to God. And then there's a problem between he and Lot. So he stands up and, and he encourages Lot to make the choice. Okay, in chapter 13 and verse 12, Lot makes his choice. He lifts up his eyes and he chooses the beautiful lamb that reminded him of Egypt. Verse 14 of chapter 13 the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot had been separated from him, lift up now your eyes and look. Look at the land. Look southward. Look northward. Look eastward. Look westward. And all the land, in verse 15, which you see, to thee I will give, and to thy seed forever. Then he tells him in verse 17, go walk through all of the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, and I'll give it to you. Everywhere that you see, everywhere that you walk, I'll give it to you. Then Abraham, notice it says, removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron. And notice what Abraham does. I mean, what do you know? When you're walking with God and you're making God's name great, you worship God. And so what does he do when he shows up at Mamre, which is down here in Hebron area down here? He builds an altar. He built there an altar unto the Lord. Now this is interesting. Epps points out that Abram was not taken or attacked in this battle. Despite the fact that he was a very wealthy man. So you have this giant battle. And I, I, this is a, a more detailed but a good map. This is from the Bible Atlas uh, map that I have, and uh, this is really a good map. 
And it shows you a few little details here. This is the, 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 where some of the battles, some of the location names that show up. Uh, the Horhites down here. There's Sodom and Gomorrah. This seems to be possibly the battle of uh, where the battle takes place, the battle of Sedin. Uh, it actually is underwater today. Uh, this, this area right here, and archaeologists have, have gone underneath the Dead Sea and down into the portions, and uh, I think even National Geographic has some, some, uh, um, some videos about their search for Sodom and Gomorrah, and they actually have to go underneath the Dead Sea now because this area. So this, this battle that would have taken place in this area. And if you'll zoom back out, Mr. Jones, up to this area up here, this shows back up to, um, this, is, this is where Mamre and Hebron is. This is where he builds his, um, his, his altar. And you can tell, actually, the elevation here is about 2,000 feet above sea level. Um, I don't know if you can see that right there, but uh, the Dead Sea is actually 1,400 feet below sea level. All right, it's just the lowest point, so it doesn't give a, a depth here. It's the lowest point on the earth that is not underwater is, uh, well, not right there, that's underwater, but along the shoreline here in this area. So basically, Abram was able from his tent to look down, and you can go there in Hebron today, and you can look and you can see the Dead Sea. And he could see from where he was in his tent, he could watch this battle happen. And the war raging. He could see the effects. I'm sure he probably could even hear it. And, and see the, the, the war that had taken place um, along the Dead Sea. Even down in this region down here. And you can see, you can actually see uh, the mountains of Jordan from, uh, from Jerusalem uh, along the, the mountain range. But I say all of that because I want you to understand that, that Abram is watching all of this take place. And why is Abram not involved? Why is he not attacked? Because he lived in a tent. He's a nomad. He's living off the land. He has sheep. He's not built any cities. The only thing he's built that is stationary, that, that can be seen to this day, were altars. He has no army. He has no vast housing complexes. He doesn't have houses everywhere he's built. He's living in tents. Anyone coming to him would have had no idea outwardly that he was wealthy, that he was rich. Count his sheep, maybe. In other words, he didn't live for possessions. How does man show their wealth? They build bigger cars and bigger houses and bigger cities and bigger skyscrapers, bigger armies, more horses, more, more wives, more family. That's, that's the way the world, when they live for the things of the world, that's how they build their name, through material things. That's how Lot chose to build his name. And so here's Abram watching down. He can watch this conflict from afar, and he can know that his heart is not on things, but on the Lord. And when your heart is lived for the things of this world, so it can quickly be taken away. I mean, just one economic catastrophe, just one nuclear weapon, just one war, just one invasion, just one COVID pandemic, and it can all be wiped out. The things that Lot held so dear, 
the things that all of these other kings in these other cities, all of these big walls and these big mansions and these big places, all of these things that are held dear were immediately taken away. And Abraham watches it happen. Swindoll points some things out about Abram thus far in this chapter that I think is very interesting if we go to the next slide about godly people. How does Abraham live in the, in the land? What are some nuggets that we've gathered from Abraham's life? What kind of man is Abraham? Godly people are unselfish people. Abraham is going to typify and show unselfishness. Godly people are sacrificial people. They will be willing to sacrifice. Godly people are kind people. We saw that as well. Kind people, we, last week, godly people are also generous. They're not greedy. They don't live for things. Godly people are worshiping people. Abraham is an is a, is a altar builder, a Jehovah praiser. That's what, that's what he does. Godly people are meek. Meekness is what? Power under control. Power under control. Godly people are humble. Lot, you take the right and I'll take the left. Or if you choose the left, I'll take the right. He relinquishes his power to someone else and shows restraint. He's meek. He's humble. Godly people are meek and humble. Godly people are courageous. What we read about that Abraham does with 318 men is courageous. Godly people are also compassionate. This story is surrounded by love. Love that Lot does not deserve. That's important to note in the story. So let's talk about Lot here. Lot, or, um, also, I put this on the end, uh, is uh, godly people are also forgiving people. Forgiving people. So we just kind of think about that. Um, Lot. Let's think about Lot here in this story. Have you ever find your, found yourself regretting a decision you made? I have. A Lot makes this decision to pitch his tent towards Sodom. Then he shows up in Sodom. Now he's a prisoner being taken by this king Ketaliomer. And he's lost everything and his wife and his children are marching behind a caravan as a slave. I'm sure he probably regrets his decision. However, um, ungodly people don't really even think about it. Maybe Lot never regretted it in the first place. That's what sin does. Sin has terrible consequences Lot chose to settle his tent towards Sodom. Chapter 13, verse 12. The very next thing that we know in chapter 14 in verse 12 is that Lot is living in Sodom. It didn't take him very long. We don't know. Maybe months? Was it a couple years during this period? I don't know. But one chapter, he chooses the land that looks like Egypt, that is that is beautiful, it's got the rivers, it reminds him of Egypt. So he sets it and he points his door towards the city of Sodom. And what was God's opinion about Sodom in chapter 13? Look at it, chapter 13 and verse 13. This is what God thought of Sodom. And the men of Sodom were wicked 
and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. That's God's opinion about Sodom. And yet Lot moved closer and closer until he finally got what he wanted. Can I, can I tell you, sometimes God will let you get what you want. Sometimes God will let you have what you want. Is that what he did with Abraham? Abraham went to Egypt and he's living high on the hog in Pharaoh's house while his wife is who knows where. He got what he wanted. And there may be some fun and pleasure in it for a while. How long did Lot live in Sodom before this war happened? We don't know, but I'm sure he was living high on the hog. Now Lot finds himself caught up in a conflict in a war and he's a prisoner. Now don't misunderstand me. Good and godly people find themselves caught up in terrible situations too. I know there have been Christians and believers who have been behind enemy lines and been caught in very serious situations and been prisoners. But here in this story, Lot is in the situation because of his own choices. That's clear in the passage. It's mentioned several times and we go back to the context. Abraham's not in the, in the situation. Abraham's not taken captive. He chose that he's up there in the land. And if Lot had chosen to be up there and out of Sodom, he wouldn't have been in the conflict either. But Lot is in the predicament that he's in because of his own choice. Because of his own doing. He is here because he chose this type of life. And now he has to bear the consequences of being a citizen of Sodom. Calvin says this in his commentary about this passage, the more closely we are connected with the wicked and the ungodly, when God pours down his vengeance upon them, the more quickly does the scourge come down upon us too. Young people, adults, and children, there are always consequences to your decisions. You will have to bear them when they come. Don't blame God. Don't blame Abraham. Don't blame mom and dad. Don't blame the herdmen. When they come, and they come because of your own choices, man up and bear them. And when you run from God and you choose your own path, there will be consequences. So what do you do? When it comes and you bear the consequences of your own decisions, run back to God. He will give you forgiveness. Be honest about your own choices. Accept your decisions and the consequences that you now live under. Accept them. Find forgiveness. Accept them. Don't let your pride be hit and, and keep it up. Let it be broken. Take the hit and find out what God wants you to do. And he wants you to get back up. So, Lot's in jail. He's been caught with bad friends. No doubt drunk, maybe drugged. Partying all night in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing the wrong things. Does anybody disagree with my, my opinion about the scenario? Now, that's Lot. Now we find Abram. In the life of Abram in this passage in, and in this story, we see 
what happens. As much as we like the details about war and the drama and seeing bad people and foolish people get what they deserve, this chapter is not about Lot. This chapter is not about Kevin This chapter is not about the details of the war, even those slime pits and those types of things are really cool to read about. They're hard to read about, but they're really cool to read about. This chapter is about Abram. So in verse 14, he hears, um, well, let's just read it. And when Abram heard that his, can you read the next word? Is he his brother? Well, this word can be used in a loosely fashion as, as a, but he's his nephew. The previous verse said his brother's son. But how does Abram view him? In the previous chapter, he views him as an equal. He didn't pull out his stops. I'm the uncle and you're the nephew. Get on out of here. No, he viewed him as a brother, as an equal. And he said, all right, we're going to bargain. You choose first. And now Abram's got caught, or Lot's got caught. He's in prison. He's bearing his own consequences. And Abram views Lot as a brother. That's important in the story. He was compassionate about what had happened. Abram's heart was broken for Lot's predicament. Abram did not turn a blind eye to Lot's tight spot. Epps says he could have been calloused and unmoved by Lot's situation because of the selfish attitude that Lot had displayed earlier. Well, that pipsqueak, he gets what he deserves. What happens when you go down to Sodom? What happens when you get, you know, running around with some of them people? We'll just let him squirm a little while. Abram is compassionate. This should teach us a lesson about our attitude towards those who fall in sin. We don't plaster it. We don't advertise it but we should weep over it and desire to admonish in the spirit of meekness. We should weep and be hurt. Jesus said that when one lost sheep goes astray of the ninety and nine, the shepherd goes looking for the one lost sheep. Matthew Henry says this in his old commentary. He says, though others have been lacking in their duty towards us, Yet we must not therefore deny our duty towards them. So he gathers trained servants, members of his household. That's interesting. And when I read that word trained servants, what's he been training them for? They watch sheep, herds. Has he been preparing them for a potential battle one day? I mean, he's been watching battle. Maybe one day the war, we need to prepare. Are these men who are trained? I mean, they obviously seem like really good commandos. I mean, they're, they're not, they're, they're, you know, these aren't just guys out. They're going to go and they're going to they're gonna strategize and they're going to invade an army probably three, four, maybe five times their size. And the indication in Moses records for us, they were trained. Abraham's got some thought and some plan. He's prepared. He takes 318 men. 
And the power that Abraham went in was not in his superior numbers or in his great experience or in his better weapons, but simply the power and the name of the Lord. He faced an overwhelming odds. So here, just a little map that just shows you. Hebron is down here. It is a hundred miles from here to Dan. And this map is not as accurate. And it is a hundred miles from Dan to Damascus. And the scripture says within one verse that he pursues them up to Dan. Then as far as Hobah and Damascus. So he travels over 200 miles with 318 men pursuing an army four or five times his size. And notice what happens in the passage where it says uh, in verse 15, and he divided themselves against them. In other words, he divided his 318 men uh, in divisions. That's, That's cutting down your numbers, isn't it? And then he and his servants by night went and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all of the goods and also brought again his brother and his goods and the women also and the people. So when we see this, we see exactly what Abram does with this. He divides himself in his army. He shows strategy and he pursues them to Dan. Now, uh, notice one thing that you can see on this map. You see Dan far up in the north up there. Um, who is Dan? Where does Dan come from? Dan is the first of two sons born to Jacob and Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid. He is the fifth son of Jacob. When was Dan born? Genesis 35. What chapter are we in? Genesis 14. Dan does not become a city until Joshua 19. In fact, there's a story recorded for us in Judges 18. Joshua, Judges. We've got to go through the five books. I mean, Joshua, Judges 18 tells us a story about 600 Danites who leave the southern portion of the promised land and go up to a city in the north and conquer that city and call it Dan. The point is, this city, Dan, does not exist in Genesis 14. But it's called Dan. In fact, the city, Dan, does not exist in Moses' day. Moses dies, and the city of Dan is conquered in the life of Joshua and the book of Judges. The city, according to Joshua, was called Laish. Moses, either by inspiration, is given a name of a person that does not exist yet, and a city that's not been named yet, or someone later comes back to Genesis, probably Joshua, and edits the name and calls it Dan. The gates of Laish now sit as a tourist site that can be uncovered and seen and visited today. It's called Dan, or at least the the tell of Dan. And next year, we will go and visit and see 
the old Laish Canaanite city that dates to before Abraham, that Abraham went up and conquered this area. Abram to the rescue. Our time is fleeting. What would you have done if Lot was in a jam and needed help? Abraham could have easily said, you chose your bed, sleep in it. You deserve this. This is none of my business. Serves you right. But remember, godly people are gracious people. Godly people are forgiving people. Remember, godly people are sacrificial people. What does Abraham do? Lot doesn't deserve it. But great and godly people do great and godly things that don't make sense from this world's standpoint. So he goes because he views Lot as a brother. He's unselfish. This reminds me of our heavenly father and what he did for us. He came to my rescue when I did not deserve it. I was like Lot. He fought off the army on my behalf for me. I was a prisoner. And he gave himself as a sacrifice in my place so that I could be set free. Abraham pictures in a spiritual way for me what God did for us. Verse 16, he fights back. He gets all of the goods and he brings them back. Look at verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Ketaliomer and of the kings that were with him and at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dial. Look down in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods thyself. What, what kind of king comes to his rescuer and says, Give me? I'll tell you what kind of king. A wicked king. A selfish king. Who does he think he is giving Abram orders? He just got rescued. He's been defeated, and now he's trying to bargain with Abram? He should have been bowing before Abram, saying, thank you. And by the way, can I go back? Not one word from Lot does he say thank you to Abram. In fact, we don't hear any more about a, a Lot until Genesis chapter 19, when an angel is trying to drag him out of the city of Sodom. Lot is a selfish ungrateful, self-centered, self-indulgent, greedy little twerp. You can think of any other names. And then interesting, the offer to Abram, take the goods for yourself. And Abram said in verse 22, the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth that I will not take from a thread, even to a shoe latch, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. So here Abram says no. I don't, he's being offered, he's being paid for his services. And Abraham says, no, I have sworn. This is the word where he says, I've raised my hand. Means that he made a promise to God. He raised his hand and made a promise to God. He made a vow to God who was the possessor of heaven and earth. God owns it all. 
Abram gives credit for the victory to El Elyon, the God Most High. That's the same God that Melchizedek will make reference as the priest of the Most High God in the previous verse. I skipped over that. We'll have to come back to that at a different time. He said, but I will not take a thread or a shoe latch. In other words, Abram doesn't live for things. He says, I have all that I need. The king of Sodom was a very wicked man, and Abram knew that dealing with wicked men and wicked cities like that was dangerous. Don't even get into any kind of bargaining or any kind of deals with people like that. I don't want a shred of evidence for me being even linked to your city. Lest anyone would say or accuse me of being in league with you. He said, I don't want your money. If he had accepted the money, then he would have gone against his promise to the Lord and he would have gone against his commitment with God. Abram is being tested in his faith when he receives the victory. Who gets the credit? Would his pride set in and you say, you know what, that was a pretty good job. I've only had 300 men against thousands and thousands. And yeah, and I brought everything back. Something that you couldn't do because you got stuck in the pits. But Abram handles the victory with maturity and graciousness and shows that his trust was in the Lord. Matthew Henry said this, the people of God must for their credit's sake take heed of doing anything that looks wicked or mercenary or that savors of covetousness and self-seeking. And I say a practical side, be careful about receiving a blessing without saying thank you. Also, be careful you don't offer a gift for the purpose of controlling someone else. That's what the king of Sodom was doing. I'm going to give Abram something so that he'll give me something in return. Selfish people receive but never say thank you. And selfish people give in order to control the person they gave to. Notice verse 24 as we close here. Um, Save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me. Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. I like what Swindoll points out at this verse. He, he basically says, I don't want anything from you. I didn't do this for possessions. But my friends over here who've made such great sacrifice, let them take what they deserve. Abram doesn't force his choice on others. He made a choice. He made a vow. But these men had not made that vow. So Abram didn't say, all right, come on, guys. Let's just get out of here. We're not going to take anything from this guy. Come on, come on. And the other guy's like, oh, you know. What about me? <laughs> I didn't make any vow to Jehovah. And Abram is gracious. Great men think of others and don't demand everyone to do it their way. They let everyone make the decision for themselves. They don't force themselves upon someone else. You've got to think. You've got to do. You've got to make the vows. You've got to do everything just like I do. So get in line. Tell this guy no. Abram makes his choice and walks away. And the other men can make their own choice. That's what great men do. Great men are not selfish, self-serving, 
They think of others. And they give God the glory. Father, pray that you'd help us as we close tonight. Lord, some important lessons. Just even the most practical lesson. Say thank you when someone does something for you. Would we be very careful when we offer a gift to someone else or a payment to someone else that we don't seek to control that person with that gift, bribing them to get on our team? Lord, would we be careful like Abram when, when people fall into sin that we don't have a prideful spirit and a prideful attitude and not offer forgiveness, not show compassion, not be gracious, and even sometimes be sacrificial and go to their rescue. They don't deserve it. They may not even say thank you in return. It may not even change their life. It didn't, it didn't lots. But it's the right thing to do. Lord, that takes wisdom, especially when parents are dealing with children who are away from the Lord or grandparents with grandchildren. It takes wisdom and not every person may do it the same way as another parent or another grandparent. Great men of God make their choices and allow others to make their choices too. And don't hold that against someone else. Lord, would we show the graciousness and love that Abraham demonstrates here? And would we be careful of the dangers of living for the world? It can all be taken away. Where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. In Jesus' name.